Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Most of us don't know what it's like to be in the military. About 1% of Americans are serving in the U.S. Armed Forces today. Less than 10% have ever served. Ryan Lee Dosti is someone who has. Her love of foreign languages led her to join the U.S. Army after high school. The Connecticut veteran writes in her memoir, Formation, I chose the Army after some debate. I came home from school that day, still holding my recruiter's card, and said to my mother, the Army has this language school that can teach me Japanese, and it's free. She enlisted and went through training in multiple states from Oklahoma to California to Louisiana. It was that last Army post, Fort Polk, that changed Dosti in ways she never wanted. Formation isn't the typical war memoir. Before Dosti was deployed to Iraq, she was raped by a fellow soldier. She writes about how the military responded to her allegation and the effect it had on her in Iraq and after. Ryan Lee Dosti joins me now in studio. Ryan, so much, so glad to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, before we begin, for listeners, this conversation may not be suitable for all ears. In case your kids are nearby, you might want to sit the next hour out. Uh, Ryan, I mentioned your book. It's uh, The full title is Formation, A Woman's Memoir of Stepping Out of Line. Uh, you served as a linguist for military intelligence in the U.S. Army. Uh, at the time that you enlisted, how many women were serving? Were you one of the few? Oh, um... I'm not sure the how many people were enlisted, uh, but I would say we would probably make about 13% of the overall army, 13 to 15%. I know that that percentage has risen over the years, uh, so there's more and more women joining. In my particular job, there was more women. In, in military intelligence, there tends to be more women. There was definitely less women at Fort Polk, um, which was the rumor was that it was pretty much 30 men to one woman. Mm. So remind us of the time that you enlisted. This was uh, before 9-11. Yes. I enlisted in 2000 right out of high school and at a time where nobody was even thinking about war. It was in nobody's consciousness and we never thought it was a possibility. My recruiter said to me, oh, who's going to go to war with America? And he didn't say it as a lie. He believed it. We all believed it. So I joined um, – for adventure, to do something exciting uh, for free college, especially for the language school. It was something different that other people weren't doing, and it seemed exciting. And then suddenly we were going to war. Mm. Uh, before uh, we talk about what it was like to be deployed in Iraq, I wanted to learn more about your upbringing. Um, what was your reaction, your mother's reaction, your family's reaction when you first said, you know, I think I want to join? When I said I think I want to join, my mother turned around in stark horror and said, you didn't sign anything, did you? Um, she was concerned that I had signed something without knowing, without having her looking it over and, and being sent off. But she was very supportive of me. My father was very supportive of me. Um, my mother had always had a love for uh, the military and uh felt very patriotic. My brother had been part of the, this organization called the Young Marines, which I don't know is still around now, but in the uh, 90s, it would train young 
young kids on like it would drill them and discipline and stuff like that. So, you know, we weren't a military family, but we supported the military. So it was not like I ever felt she or anyone else said, no, don't do this. I mentioned uh, the different uh, places that you trained. Uh, let's talk about uh, Fort Polk. Describe that place uh, for those of us who don't know a lot about this particular Army post. And it was actually a surprise to you that you were going to be stationed there. Yes. Uh, military intelligence doesn't typically go to Fort Polk. Uh, we jokingly call it the armpit of the world. <laughs> it's in the middle of nowhere. And to to give people a good idea of how in the middle of nowhere, I used to tell people I would have to drive an hour to get to a bookstore. And this was sort of the before the time of being able to order or just coming around the time of being able to order books online, Amazon, and, and being having books shipped to you. So every weekend, I would have to drive an hour to go to a bookstore. And most of the stuff around there was more explicit activity. Um, you know, there was tattoo parlors, there were stripper places, and that was pretty much it. And a one movie theater that periodically caught on fire. Like, <laughs> like it literally happened like three or four times. <laughs> so you did boot camp where? I did boot camp. I was supposed to do boot camp um, at Relax in Jackson, which is uh, Fort Jackson, a little bit more laid back, and it's meant more for the supply, military intelligence, those of us who, you know, aren't expected to be doing the hardcore stuff. And that was, they had too many people there, so they sent us to uh, Fort Sill, which is affectionately called Fort Kill, during the very short time that they allowed women. Mm. like is Oklahoma? Oklahoma, yes. So they didn't have women and it opened up to women just before I got there, so they they almost didn't even know what to do with us. And then pretty soon after I left, they closed out and didn't have women for a while again. Mm-hmm. So I guess we were a failed experiment. <laughs> I'm not sure. So a circuitous route to uh, Fort Polk in Louisiana. What was that place like uh, on base, on post? Um, on po- it was it was old, and uh, we used to joke, although it really it wasn't a joke. There was a black mold growing all throughout the barracks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it did not have a very good language center, for example, where we're supposed to, it's our responsibility to keep up with our language. So we didn't have the, the language training that we needed. And most of the time I spent in the motor pool uh, working on Humvees. <laughs> so that was definitely on the job training. <laughs> Uh, when you are in your book, when you talk about uh, your time at Fort Polk, you, you talk about the casual misogyny, the things mm-hmm. that were said. Um, can you describe some of uh, your reactions when you heard this? Was this just your, with your thought that this is just the army and I just need to, to deal with it? Oh, absolutely. And I think if you talk to almost any military woman, they're very familiar with this, that um, you can't be and men too actually have to go through this as well women more so but um you know men are are tried and tested on this as well you can't be offended uh it's sort of like um a rite of passage to be able to go through something that's you know, jokes or actions that are offensive and you don't report it and that sort of is going to determine how good of a soldier you are and i say that in in air quotes meaning how well you can handle Mm. Uh, insulting and offensive material. Mm. 
Uh, I'm talking with Ryan Lee Dosti, who's a Connecticut resident. She's a veteran, served in Iraq. Uh, she's written uh, her first book, a memoir, Formation. Uh, we're talking about her experiences uh, before and after deployment. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Uh, so it was at Fort Polk where um, something happened to you that you never expected. Can you talk about uh, that night? Uh, that night... I went out with some friends, and I actually um, I was on some medication for having positive uh, PPD, which means they tested me positive for tuberculosis. And they said, "Oh, don't worry. It's just it's sleeping inside you here. Just take this medication for nine months and uh, don't drink because it ruins your liver in general. And uh, you know, if your liver starts failing, we'll worry about that later." kind of thing. But I was 21. So you're not really thinking of how this is really going to damage your body. And so I said, oh, I'll have just a couple of drinks, you know. And I not realizing how quickly that would affect me. And so I came to a point that I was I was very drunk. And I said to my friends, I've had too much to drink. I need to go home. And, you know, they, they agreed with me and they took me home. And I went home to my barracks. Uh, I went to my room. Um, and my friend, Andre, who I call Andres in the book, he brought me up to my barracks room. And there was another guy there, um, an analyst, who I didn't know. And Andres didn't well, – we knew in passing because he was in the unit, but, like, I'd never had a conversation with him before. And Andres thought he was my friend. I thought he was Andres's friend. So he came up to the room with us, and he was like, oh, here, I have some more alcohol. And he pretty much, you know – shove this wine bottle in my hand and and even at one point tip the bottle up so to make me drink more. And then finally I was like, you know, I can't. I'm done. I'm going to bed. And they left. And the door closed, the door locked, and I went to sleep. Mm. And I where I thought I was safe and where I thought I did everything right. I drank too much, but I went home, you know, and it didn't end up, you know, the way it should have. Mm. Uh, you woke up to uh, this analyst assaulting you, uh, raping yes. you. Um, what happened after that assault? Um, afterwards, as actually even as he was leaving, I, I tried to like normalize the moment. And I said to him, oh, it's okay. It's not like I don't know what rape is. So I told him right away that I felt he raped me. And he said, I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, call me if you ever want to do this again. And then he left. And um, I, you know, pretty much broke down. And across the hall was Andres's room. And I went, ran right there and, you know, was pounding on his door. And um, he came in. He was all confused. He's like, what happened, you know? And he let me into his room. And the people in the next room, um, uh, one of them was an MP. And I so get, military police. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, military police. Yeah, so they, I guess, knew what was happening. I don't know if whether they saw him go into the room because they came into the room. They said, oh, we were afraid this was going to happen. And the MP said, do you want me to call the MPs? And um, so she called them for me. I don't know if I ever would have on my own. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if it was a good thing or, or a bad thing considering how the Army treated me, mm -hmm. um, having reported but the MPs came, and um, right away it was a very uncomfortable situation. They made me go back into my room and do the this interview there, which I didn't even want to go into the room. 
And my room was messy because it was a weekend. And your rooms have to be clean for Monday because they have inspection. But it was a weekend, so it was a mess. And I would have had it clean for Monday. But they wrote in the report that my room was a mess. That made me look like a bad soldier. So like right off the bat, they were looking for reasons why we don't want to believe her. This is a bad soldier. This isn't somebody who we want to stand behind. Um, and then I got in the the vehicle to go to the um, MP station. And the MP, MP officer in the vehicle was talking to me. And again, I, I don't know why, but I guess a part of me wanted to just keep normalizing everything, you know, like um, like to make it to not re- to not to fully realize what was happening. So he was just having small talk with me and I just talked back, you know, and part of it maybe was just so I didn't have to think. And that went into the report. Oh, she was, you know, able to talk back. She um, and they pretty much said she didn't act like a rape victim. And I didn't realize it at the time, but right from the beginning, they were looking for ways to discount and disprove mm-hmm. uh, what happened. So you were taken into the hospital, examined. Yes. And do you know if uh, anything had happened to uh, you, the person who assaulted you right away? Was he being questioned? I know he was being questioned. They went over, the MPs went over there, and initially he said he was never there. He um, He was never there that night. And they said, well, we have proof you were there. So then he changed the story and said, oh, yes, I was there. But uh, it was, he said, consensual. So, And I learned about that later. I'm like, so you're going to trust this guy who already lied, but but now you're, you still think him saying it was consensual. Um, you're going to trust and believe that. And it even went into the report that after he had left my room the first time, he went to his friends and he said, oh, that Dosti chick is so drunk. I'm going to go back to her room. So he knew and he targeted me because I was drunk and he knew and he knew that 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 was what he set out to do. And that went in the report and it didn't even matter. You mentioned this report. Uh, you didn't see the report until after you were told the results of the investigation, the investigation going on uh, yeah. for weeks. Uh, you actually found out um, sitting at a, a meeting with your full company. Yes. Yeah. I was wondering if you could read that excerpt from your book. Uh, sure. Again, Ryan Lee Dosti in studio with me here on Where We Live uh, as she reads from her debut book, Formation. I don't know what unsubstantiated means. I've never heard the word before. It isn't part of my vocabulary. So when Captain Wells says it in front of the entire company, heads swiveling in my direction, I don't know what he means or why it's so significant. The investigation has been going on for months, long weeks where I hear nothing from the case, almost like everyone has forgotten all about it. Now we're sitting in the equal opportunity briefing, the company sprawled out across the small theater, seated in heavily worn blue seats. Captain Wells scans the the crowd and his eyes linger on me slightly as he nears the end of his speech. He hesitates showing me the tiniest lift, lift of his lip in a sneer, then turns away. Now everyone knows about that sexual, case, sexual assault case going on in the company right now, he says. I go, co- I go cold, my heart sputtering in shock. Captain Wells stares back at the upturned faces of his company and says, and that case has been found unsubsta- unsubstantiated. So guys, if a girl accuses you of something you didn't do, don't worry. You won't get in trouble unless you actually did something wrong. 
Is he talking about what I think he's talking about? Andres's face is dark with anger, his mouth open aghast. I sit rooted in place, incredulous, thinking he can't be talking about my case. He's not talking about me. I can feel the eyes of the company turn towards me, drinking in my reaction, and I wonder how many minds were made up in this moment. What does unsubstantiated mean? I ask no one. The briefing is over, and I jump up from my seat, pushing through the bodies, forcing my way to Sergeant Pelton. Everything has slowed. A buzzing in my ears dulls the noise of the crowd. Was he talking about me? I blurt out to him and grasp his elbow, forcing him to face me. It's aggressive and inappropriate, and I do it anyways, as if having him pinned in my hand will force him to take me seriously. Sergeant Pelton freezes, his normally bright eyes jumping to the side, looking for an exit plan. He couldn't have been talking about me, right? I persist. Sergeant Pelton sighs. He doesn't want to be here. Captain Wells just told me today the case was found unsubstantiated. I don't know what that means, I say. I rest my palms against the wall to hold myself up. Sergeant Pelton's eyes flutter shut, as if asking for strength. He doesn't want to have to be the one to do this. He shouldn't have to. Captain Wells should have. His absence, as usual, is telling. It means that they can't rule one way or the other. It's your word against his. The words fall like physical blows. I'm still holding his elbow, my grip tightening. But this is how he, how he tells me? This is how I find out? Sergeant Pelton says nothing. But what about the photos? I shake him, trying to knock loose all the answers I need to hear. I remember the MPs calling me back into the small side office, asking me to strip, standing half-naked in a stark, cold room while a woman officer held a camera up to my skin, capturing the bruises that lined my rib cage and arms, her nose inches from my flesh, the bare light bulb swinging on the cord overhead as she examined me. Don't those prove anything? I say. I'm sorry, is all he says, and I drop his elbow. How sorry can he be? It's not like he believes me anyway. Ryan Lee Dosti, again, uh, reading from her memoir, Formation, a woman's memoir of stepping out of line. You know, as I was reading uh, your book, Ryan, I went through a lot of different emotions. At this point, uh, feeling rage. How did you feel when you realized your chain of command felt like this was the appropriate way to tell you, someone who was assaulted, that this was the outcome of the investigation, the way they went about and told you? Um, I think I was in shock at first. Like, I just I couldn't believe it. And then I moved straight to rage. And I was just, I stayed very angry at Captain Wells for, for years. And um, I think I projected, well, probably rightfully so, all my anger, all my emotions onto him. Uh, a lot of it because I couldn't face or th- even think about the analyst at all, who was still around, who I would still have to see and work with. Um, and so I just had this this buildup of rage that I just kept directed at Captain Wells. I felt um, betrayed. I felt hurt. Um, my sense of justice was totally violated. This was supposed to be my command. They're supposed to look out for you. And um, everything I believed about my command 
um, that I was the foundation of me serving my my country and and my army was just broken. Uh, during the investigation, it wasn't um, like everything went back to normal. You mentioned you saw your rapist. Yes. And at the same time, you were also treated differently. Describe that to us. The being treated differently. Unfortunately, being ostracized is a very common side effect of reporting rape in the military. Um, there were pe- there. I did definitely had people who were there for me. I had a support system and, and those who believed me. And then I had those who didn't, who uh, wanted to call me names um, and wanted to believe it was all made up. And um, at one time, my my platoon sergeant, who I loved, I he was a great platoon sergeant. Um, and I, I don't think he meant to betray me. I think he didn't know what to do. I think that's part of the problem, too, in the military. They're not trained properly um, on how to handle this sort of situation. And he sort of just kind of said, are you sure? Are you sure this happened? Are you sure you're, you were raped? Like, like this is something I'm, I'm not going to know and, uh, or I'm going to mistake. And um, that hurt the most because I was so close with him. He had let me up until this point sleep on his couch because I wouldn't sleep in the room. He um, had let me hang around his family. And I don't know if he asked to move me out of the company. I'm not really, nobody will give me an answer to this day. I'm not really sure because I even asked him years later and he doesn't know. Uh, but I got kicked out of his platoon and I was supposed to move into another platoon, but that platoon sergeant didn't want me at the time. And so here I'm in this formation and I'm supposed to be falling in with my platoon and I have no platoon. So I go to one platoon and I my Sergeant Pelton's like, no, you're not in this platoon anymore. And I go to the other one and Sergeant Daniels is like, what are you doing? You're not one of mine. So I ended up standing in between these two platoons by myself at the back of the formation. Um, and it was just a total isolation. Um, and I, you know, I felt, it felt horrible. I wanted to leave. I wanted to go AWOL, but as military intelligence with top secret security clearance, that wasn't even an option. Uh, during that time, did you feel like they were making an example of you, Ryan, that you reported that you were making things difficult and if others did what you did, they'd be treated the same way? Hmm, That's a very good question. I don't know if they were intentionally doing that. I don't know if they set out to do that. I think they just didn't believe rape victims. I think they just, it wasn't in there. Either they didn't believe it or they believed it and didn't want to deal with it. I don't think they maybe set it up as an example, but it most certainly probably was. I think they just didn't they just didn't want this. Um, un- the way it works right now, um, if a commander, for example, has somebody raped in their in their company, that can affect how he looks as a commander. And so, of course, he doesn't want to have that on the books. If it's found unsubstantiated, then it doesn't. It never happened. It doesn't exist. Mm. While this was all going on, did you feel torn because you still loved the military? You still loved being part of the army? Um, yeah, in a really weird way. I don't. I never blamed the army. I, th- I think at that time, I, I think now I can, and I don't like necessarily blame the army. And I still have a love of my my service and my memories. Um, and they, and I know now that they. They have definite cultural issues that they have to fix. Um, I didn't blame the army. I blamed my command, 
my very ineffectual command. Um, and a part of me wondered if it happened somewhere else, if it would have been treated differently. In retrospect, I don't know if it would have been. I hear after having this book come out, I've had an outpouring of women privately contacting me and said, this happened to me, this happened to me, and all very similar stories up to even recently. We're talking within the past couple of weeks. And it's all the same type of story on repeat from different units, different brand, you know, different branches and different ranks. I've had officers, which shocked me, officers who you always think are safe because they're officers, um, telling me that these things happened to them and the way the military treated them. And some, I had a, a one woman say that, uh, and I, this broke my heart. She reported it and they dealt with, you know, um, they sort of dealt with it. But everyone in her, who she worked with, um, stopped talking to her. Like literally just stop talking to her. And it was a job she loved and she was totally isolated and ostracized. If they just, you know, like you, she would say something and they would just ignore her. And how do you deal with that? This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Ryan Lee Dosti, a combat veteran, author of the new book, Formation, A Woman's Memoir of Stepping Out of Line. We're going to continue talking with her uh, after the break and later. Uh, what will it take to change the culture within the military? We want to hear from you. You can join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you're just tuning in, uh, today's topic is not suitable for all ears, especially if you have children nearby. Uh, my guest is Ryan Lee Dosti. She was deployed to Iraq just weeks after being raped by a fellow service member. She had to recover from the trauma on her own while being attached to a combat unit in a war zone. It didn't matter what, that she reported it. More than one commander told her, do you really want to ruin his life? Instead, she was the one who was vilified, made to feel like the assault was her fault, and she was expected to just move on. Dossie writes about her experiences in her debut book, Formation, a woman's memoir of stepping out of line. Again, I mentioned she lives in Connecticut. She's with me today uh, in studio. So you found out that this investigation was deemed unsubstantiated. Uh, he said, she said, and they weren't going to do anything uh, to uh, the man who assaulted you. Uh, you actually went to the inspector general's office. Uh, your mother even got involved. Yes. And, and tell us what they told you. Um, well, they said to my mother as well, do you really want to ruin this guy's life? Um, as if I was the, the wrong one trying to, to, to seek justice. I went to the inspector general, and she was uh, sympathetic in a professional kind of way and essentially sort of like a, oh, honey, just move on with your life sort of thing. Um, you know, she she pretty much said there's nothing she can do and that it, it was my job uh, to just deal with it, move on. When you found out that you were going to be deployed to Iraq, in, in one sense, were you looking forward to that because you were be able to distance yourself from this post, from what happened to you? Well, you're going with the same unit, so you don't really get any distance from the unit. It was still my same commander and uh, platoon sergeants and everyone I served with um, or everyone I was at Fort Polk with. And I thought that the analyst was going as well. And 
I was not in a very good headspace. And as I say in the book, like even I knew nobody should have been putting a gun in my hands. And I went to my first sergeant and I told him this. And he said, well, the analyst is staying behind because he's ETSing, which means he's, he's separating from the military. His time was finished. So you could stay here at Fort Polk with him in rear deployment or you can go to Iraq. And so I chose to go to Iraq. Uh, remind us what year. Was the beginning of the oh. war? Uh, yes, this was 2003. So we um, went into, in, we being the military army, um, well, the military in general, invaded in March of 2003. And I left for Iraq in April 2003, so the next month. Mm-hmm. We were the first occupying force. So what was that like uh, to from going the time when you talked to your recruiter just a few years before uh, saying, no, you don't, we're not going to end up going to war. And now there you were. Um, it was scary. I always say I, I, I wasn't Rambo. I never expected to for that to happen. Uh, but it also was sort of one of those things where you're like, oh, okay. You know, you're so you're sort of used in the military, just kind of end up having to do what you're told. And for a long time, nobody believed it either. Everybody said, no, we're not really going until we were on the plane and we were actually going. And then people said, oh, my God, we're, we're going to Iraq. Um, so... Yeah, you just sort of kind of roll with the punches kind of thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're still trying to recover from uh, the trauma that you experienced. So how did that manifest in you? Um, Iraq gave me, for a while, um, some distance, uh, especially from the analyst. And um, as I got better um, in some ways in Iraq, um, it made it was able to give me a, a new slate so I thought I was getting better, and I thought um, by the end of Iraq, uh, I thought I was in a much better place. Uh, come to find out, I was really just suppressing a lot of things that would affect me very, very much later on. You write in the book that you were almost punishing yourself. You were binge eating. Oh, yeah. uh, you uh, went on to cut yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you had moments where you felt rage, where you felt out of control. Uh, later on, did you find out that these were some um, symptoms or what that you were going through post-traumatic stress? It took me a long time to realize that I had post-traumatic stress um, because, like I said, in Iraq, uh, before I went to Iraq, I I had an eating disorder. I was binge eating and I had gained a lot of weight. In Iraq, um, I started I changed, I guess it was still sort of an eating disorder. I changed how I um, addressed it, and I was very, very regimented. It lost a lot of weight. So I thought that meant I was doing better. I thought that meant I was healthy. And later on, when I started exhibiting signs of PTSD, I didn't feel I deserved PTSD. And also my PTSD symptoms were different than what I thought they were supposed to be. So tell us more about that. You didn't think you deserved uh, PT post being yeah. diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. So you thought this was something that only uh, people on the front lines of combat dealt with? Yeah. I mean, it's like, so I always used to say I wasn't kicking down doors. I wasn't in raids. Uh, I wasn't in firefights. I mean, I was shot at a couple times and mortared, but it wasn't anything major in the sense of of what other people go through um, in Iraq or Afghanistan. So I thought there's no way I could or should have PTSD. I didn't feel I earned it. I didn't. And um, so when I first started showing signs, I was a little upset uh, with myself, which is I know now is is a terrible and wrong thing to think. 
Uh, but my PTSD was also different. It wasn't just combat related. I started having feelings of e- intense shame. Um, I felt dirty and a combat trigger could make me react in a way that I now know was my PTSD from the rape. And a lot of that was because I never had sat down and spoke with fellow rape survivors or and I, I'd never heard about the type of PTSD that rape survivors have or go through. So I just thought I was crazy, to be honest. Um, it took a, a long time and a lot of therapy to come to the epiphany that I have mm-hmm. some combat PTSD and I definitely have you know, military sexual trauma PTSD. Ryan Lee Dosti is my guest today. Uh, she wrote the book Formation. It's her first book, uh, Formation, a Women's Memoir of Stepping Out of Line. You mentioned other rape survivors. While you were in Iraq, you heard of other cases of women, other service members being raped. What happened there? Um, when we were in Iraq, I had heard, and I had heard uh, the whole everybody heard, you know, you always hear these rumors, which is how everybody knew about my my story as well. Um, you the, the rumors just keep going on. I'd heard about a fellow uh, person who was raped and um, by several people, and uh, at, at a, in one she was gang raped, gang raped, and um, you know they everyone just didn't want to believe her and made up all these these stories about her and 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 I'm. I guess upset at myself now, I never went to her and tried to talk to her and see what really happened. And neither of us talked to each other, even though we both had gone through something very similar. We just sort of avoided each other. Why do you think that is? You think it's the way the culture set up that um, this happened to you, but now that you um, were deployed and there have been months past that you know, this is not something that you should be still fixating on? And uh, Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good way of putting it. You know, I shouldn't be fixating on it. I should be over it. And it was just easier to not deal with it. Um, And I don't know if either both of us thought that if the two of us were together, if there would be more rumors like, oh, look at the two raped girls are talking. What what are they going to come up with next? Uh, So you're extra isolated, even from the very people who you should be able to lean on. Ironically, there was an incident involving uh, an Iraqi, uh, a, a young boy uh, working on uh, in where you were uh, stationed. Uh, that uh, tell, he tried to to kiss you, and yeah. it was reported. How did the military, the chain of command, deal with that? This made me so angry. He was just a little eighteen-year-old kid or so, and I handled it. You know, he tried to. He grabbed my hand. He tried to kiss me. I threw him against the wall and told him to get out, you know. And and I was proud of myself. I was like, oh, okay, I handled this. I did this right. So I told a friend, not thinking she was going to be so upset by this. She's like, oh, my God, you have to report this. And I was like, no, I don't. Uh, Because in comparison to what I'd been through, it was nothing. And then she told my platoon sergeant, and my platoon sergeant told my commander, and he told the command sergeant major. And, I mean, it just went all the way up to – all the chain of command that I had tried desperately to reach about my rape were all there to deal with this little Iraqi kid who had tried to kiss me. And they made a big production of it. And they had all the this – this was horrible, actually. They had all the Iraqi guys that worked on the camp in, like, this formation. And they made me stand out at the front and pick out the kid 
who had tried to kiss me. And I told them, I'm not even really sure. You know, it was a dark in the area. Mm-hmm. And, and I said to them more than once, I, what if I'm, I'm wrong? And they said, oh, don't worry. We're just making an example of them so that, you know, they don't try to do that again. And they felt so good about themselves, like, oh, we're protecting you or, you know, this is what we're doing to make sure that you're, you're taking care of. And um, it just made me angrier. Like, I mean, you, you do that for, for this situation, but you can't help me when actual rape happens. Mm. So uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. My in-studio guest, Ryan Lee Dosti, a combat veteran, author of the new book, Formation, a woman's memoir of stepping out of line. She was a linguist for military intelligence uh, when she was in the U.S. Army. Uh, coming up, why is sexual violence in the military surging despite efforts to prevent it? We'll talk about that after the break. We also want to hear from you. Are you a veteran? How do you think the U.S. military should handle this problem? Join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Awareness about sexual assaults in the military has grown in the last decade. Hundreds of millions of dollars, taxpayer dollars, have been spent by the Pentagon for prevention efforts, including education programs and resources for victims. That's according to the New York Times. But sexual violence within the ranks is only getting worse. The Pentagon said more than 20,000 service members experienced some type of sexual assault in the last two years. That number's 38% higher than 2016. In this latest anonymous survey, six out of 10 women in uniform reported being assaulted. I've been talking with Ryan Lee Dossi, an Iraq War veteran and Connecticut resident, whose memoir focuses on her combat experiences after being sexually assaulted by a man in her U.S. Army unit. I wanted to welcome into our conversation now Ellen Waring, uh, Ellen Herring, rather. She's a retired Army colonel and the CEO of Service Women's Action Network, also known as SWAN. Uh, Ellen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You heard Ryan's story. How typical is this? Well, unfortunately, um, it's incredibly typical. And frankly, Ryan, you should have been mad at the Army and not necessarily your command because it was happening all over the Army and and it continues to happen in actually greater numbers today. Um, It's shocking and we've got to get a handle on it. When we talk about uh, get a handle on it, I'd mentioned that um, you know lots of money and time have been spent on uh, this particular problem. In your view, Ellen, as a retired Army colonel, you know what are the barriers uh, to figuring out why this continues to happen? Well, I think one of the biggest barriers is our focus has been on helping victims, and it should have been, um, and uh, going after perpetrators. Um, but it's really the culture where that allows this kind of behavior to develop and occur that we need to be tackling. And we've nev- we haven't done anything to tackle our culture or to really examine what is it about military culture that allows this. We, we heard um, from Ryan earlier in the show. She talks about this misogyny uh, that mm-hmm. plays out uh, from boot camp and beyond. Right. Um, and is, is that what we're talking about here, about the, the language web that we use, how women are viewed, uh, not only in the military, but in our culture? Yes. Um, I think it's reinforced in the military. So, yes, certainly it, it comes from our culture writ large. 
Um, but then you join the military, and it starts at boot camp, um, where you begin singing cadences um, that that are misogynistic, and people don't. They've only eliminated the most overtly misogynistic kinds of cadences and behavior. Um, many of the things that people do casually, as she mentioned today, aren't even viewed as misogyny. Um, the term uh, bitch, I hope that's okay to say on this radio, is commonly used to describe people who are wimpy or can't handle something. Um, and that word is thrown around constantly, um, not just in the military, but outside of it. And that is a misogynistic term. And women use it as well. Um, so we've got to examine our culture. We've got to examine our language. We've got to examine behavior that we've found acceptable. Um, and the military and the military is uniquely positioned with this boot camp and training to root it out um, in a way that the broader population isn't positioned to do. You know, uh, in the civilian side, we're used to the way our criminal justice system works. Uh, Ellen, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk more about the military justice system uh, when there is a allegation of assault, you know what is supposed to happen now in 2019, uh, many years after when uh, Ryan served in the U.S. Army. So one of the things that happens today, and actually her case was investigated, though, and in the way that it tip, it ideally should have been, although the, clearly there were mistakes that they made. Um, and by the way that it should have been, it should have been turned over to investigators. Now, it should have been turned over to trained investigators. Um, those that are trained in how to do a sexual assault investigation doesn't sound like that happened with her. Um, today, that that is what's required. Any report of sexual assault has to go immediately to a, an investigative team. It cannot be left in the hands of commanders. Commanders must immediately report. That's a change that's been made. Um, but unfortunately, even those investigators are typically, uh, it, it's, they're rooted in the culture as well. And she said something that really struck me. And she said, it's your word against his. And when it's your word against his, it's always the him that gets believed. Women simply still are not being believed. They trust and believe the man. The woman is, is not telling the truth. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Ian's calling from Wallingford. Oh, and I actually, I can't seem to click on uh, that call, so we'll try to take it uh, in just a few minutes. But uh, you mentioned uh, even the culture of those that are investigating. You know, Senator Gillibrand um, has been pushing this military improvement. I believe it's uh, the Military Justice Improvement Act, you know, how uh, this process should play out. You know, uh, a few years ago, there were calls that this shouldn't even be within the military criminal justice system. Maybe there should be outside uh, people uh, investigating that uh, the military does not want to see that happen. So I'm curious, Ellen, if you could talk about, um, you know, when we look at these proposals before Congress, is this particular proposal with how, uh, what kind of authority will be looking into this? Could that be more effective? Yes. Yeah, so our organization has long supported the Military Justice Improvement Act. And basically what that does is says that for any felony crime, it will immediately be removed from the chain of command and be investigated by trained investigators that are that are not related to the command in which it happened. 
Um, first of all, commanders don't have the expertise to investigate felony crimes. And second, there is always a conflict of interest when a crime occurs within your unit. Um, Ryan mentioned it, you know, this notion that you don't want a, you don't want people to be see your command as having a problem. Um, so there's an effort to sweep things under the rug, to downplay them, um, because it, it reflects poorly on you as a commander. So Senator Gillibrand is trying to take that all away, which is remove commanders from that process. And we fully support that. Uh, we're going to try taking this call one more time. Uh, hopefully technology is with me today. Uh, Ian's calling from Wallingford. Ian, go ahead. Yes. Um, i just like to ask, um, what happened to the analyst? That seems to be the missing piece in what we heard. And um, obviously, it's so different probably to what happened to you. But perhaps you can tell us about that. Sure. Uh, What happened with him is they did move him to another company. They told me they moved him off post, but that ended up not being true. They eventually moved him to another company. And then he separated from the military and went on with his life. Uh, Elaine, uh, we were talking about some of the uh, suggested uh, ways to tackle this issue. I understand there's also uh, been some movement where uh, there's a database uh, where uh, people who've been assaulted, harassed can report uh, this uh, person and will the U.S. military uh, then pursue an investigation there? Okay, so the new catch program, which was just launched last week, and it's something we've advocated for for over a year, would be is a database of perpetrators, essentially. Um, if you have been sexually assaulted in the military and you report it, regardless of whether you do a, an unrestricted report, which is what Ryan did, or a restricted report. So a restricted report allows you to report your assault and get the medical care you need, but not go after your perpetrator for pros- for prosecution. So Ryan went with an unrestricted, and she went after her perpetrator. Many women and men choose the restricted report route. Well, with the, the problem with the restricted report route is that that perpetrator's name never gets identified. Um, so the new catch program will allow the restricted report um, uh, person that files a restricted report to enter the perpetrator's name into a database. And what DOD plans to do with that database is then look for, has this person ever been entered in our database before, either by an unrestricted, so for instance, Ryan's perpetrator, he should be in a database at this point. His name should be in there. And if he pops up a second or a third time, then you've got a serial perpetrator. Now, unfortunately, he's out of the military. So the military is not going to be able to do anything with him Mm -hmm. anymore. But these serial perpetrators, um, they move from unit to unit and they impact many people over time. And what they do with it, once they find a match, then they go back to the victim and they say, okay, we've got a match. He hasn't just done this to you. He's done this to somebody else. Um, and then ideally, they, that gives you, well, it gives you a sense of I'm not the only person, but then it also allows you to potentially move forward with an unrestricted report and to prosecute. But now this guy has a track record. It's not like in, in Ryan's case where it was her word against his word. It's not just your word now. You're not the only person that's been impacted by this perpetrator. It's called the CATCH program. It's, I, it was designed to catch serial perpetrators. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to go back to Ryan Lee Dosti, who's been telling us uh, her story, uh, the focus of her book, Formation. Um, you know, what do you think needs to change, Ryan, so that other women and men won't experience what you did? I think everything the colonel said was was brilliant, and um, 
And I think some of those changes are working. I agree that it's definitely a cultural problem. I think that um, they need to work on dispelling the myths that surround rape. Um, A lot of the myths that uh, the people want to believe, you know, um, there's a lot of times where they say, oh, well, she only reported it for attention or retaliation or because she's her re- reputation is going to be ruined or because she's married. And I think they they need to focus on dispelling those myths that, and talking about why women actually report, what happens to women when they report and teaching a level of empathy. And um, and I think by directing that in the culture will hopefully prevent uh, these sexual assaults from happening. I should mention uh, you uh, made it through this uh, particular assault. You made it through uh, more than a year in Iraq. You came back, you got um, some care from the VA, and uh, you're still making it each and every day. You have a lovely family that's here with us today. Uh, You mentioned earlier that you've been hearing from other uh, women who've been assaulted. Um, What's it been like for you uh, now that this book is done? how do you feel about uh, the message that you've been able to put out there? I'm, um, I've been ha- happy that others have been able to reach out and and hope. One of the best things that I've uh, perpetually heard since this book has come out is, uh, "You made me feel seen, and I don't feel alone." And I don't think I could have asked for it. when people tell me that I could never ask for anything better to hear as an author, and. Um, even though it was hard to write and sometimes, you know, still hard to, to talk about or deal with, the fact that somebody out there is has connected and feels seen and understood and heard, I mean, I, it makes it all worth it. Well, Ryan Lee Dosti, we appreciate you coming in here today to talk about your story. And uh, we'll have an excerpt of your book formation on our website, WNPR wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. also want to thank uh, Ellen Herring, retired Army colonel and the CEO of Service Women's Action Network, or SWAN. Ellen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, today's show, produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown on the phones and Kion Wolf, who's our technical producer. You can download our show anytime. Just search Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.